Welcome back from that brief interlude of taking children to wherever they need to be, stretching your legs, hopefully, and uh, doing what you need to do. Okay, so good. I've already said my name's Ben. Um, great to have you here this morning. Come and say hello uh, at the end if we haven't had a chance to, uh, to meet each other yet. This morning, we are starting a new series. We're going to start a series called Here As In Sweden. Here As In Sweden. The um, keen-eared amongst you and the aficionados of the Elevation Church album will recognize that pun. And if you don't, that's really okay. It was, it was thin at best, but we Karis and I really enjoyed it. And that's usually the main reason for any um, series title we come up with here, as in Sweden. Over the next few weeks, we're going to bring you a few of the key messages from our time away in Stockholm uh, that really spoke to us and impacted a few of us who were able to be uh, over there last weekend. It really, it really was an excellent time. I was sharing with a few people. The church in Stockholm, we've kind of been aware of them and been in their orbit for about nine years. Karis um, and I first went to Sweden when Leo, our son, was almost one. Uh, I guess that was eight years ago. And uh, it's, they're just doing such a great work in their city. Stockholm is an incredibly diverse city. Um, Sweden has taken on more um, refugees from Syria than any other um, European country except for Germany. So they've got an incredibly diverse population, very, very young um, and dynamic church. They're doing an incredible job of reaching out and engaging with some of the young people from different parts of the world and different backgrounds. Um, uh, we were in the conference, about 1,500 people in the convention center, of whom about 1,000 people were from the church in Stockholm. And you know, we remember when they, when they were a church just a few years ago, so three, 400 people, they've just really impacted the young people in, the, in their city. I think about four, 500 people within the church are from, they're, they're all sort of, um, uh, of the sort of teenage variety. I was thinking I had to say it in a politically correct way without using the word hormonal. Um, but they're all very, very, you know, they all sort of look, they made me feel old looking around at the guys in the church. So um, they're a great fun bunch, really dynamic bunch of guys to be with. It's really impressive how God is using people in that city to impact the capital city of such a great nation. So we had a great time being there. We received some really, really powerful messages, and I'd love to share um, one of those with us this morning. We're going to talk this morning about two men who had an encounter in the Bible, and we're going to see what that can say to us. So um, just wonder if you can help me with this. If, if, if you're here and you're sort of aged between 15 and 20, can you just stand up for me? Just aged between 15 and 20. And if you want to lie, that's all right. Um, you can make yourself feel better. And if you're feeling particularly... Robbie, will you help me? Will you come and be King David for me? Will you come, come up and stand with me? Thanks, man. Um, thank you. You can, you can grab a seat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this, Robbie, to... Um, to be King David, because King David, when he was, we're not sure exactly how old he was, he was probably somewhere between 15, 16, 17, that kind of age, when he stood up and faced Goliath. Before that, he'd been a shepherd, really faithful, looking after, you you look like a faithful guy, we could trust you with some sheep to look after, yeah, exactly. Um, Really faithfully looking after his his family's um, flocks and sheep, until one day he went out to war, he faced the giant Goliath, and because of that, God moved him this elevated position where he became um, a leader of men, had troops kind of answering to his call. Uh, But even because of that, because of his prominence, he fell out with the king of that land, a guy called Saul. And this story isn't about David and Saul, but I'm just wondering, I kind of thought about this one in advance. I'd love to pick on Grandfather Vinton if I could. 
do you mind just coming and helping me with this? Because Grandfather Vinton is going to, for the purposes of this exercise, represent Grandfather Saul. You can come up whichever way you want. Do you want a hand? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My, my tongue enthusiasm got carried away. Come stand over here with me, because you can be Grandfather um, Saul, King. I hope you're feeling kingly. 50% kingly, we'll take it. And then for the next part of this, obviously with Grandfather King, we need Prince Junior. There you go. Prince Junior, come and join me. Because <clears throat> we read the story of, on the other hand, we've... That's right. The young blood enters the ring, people. Wow, this is very exciting. So we've got King Saul, Prince Jonathan. And what you might or might not know is that they, uh, Jonathan had a son called Mephibosheth. And every time I say the name Mephibosheth, first of all, I should excuse myself in advance. I am going to say the name Mephibosheth quite a number of times this morning. I can't guarantee that I'm going to say it right every time. In fact, I can almost guarantee that I will at some point sound like I need to go and put my dentures back in. So just bear with me. And I always feel the name Mephibosheth sounds a little bit like you're sneezing. Um, so if you just want to kind of cover your mouth and go, Mephibosheth. I think that's the correct pronunciation, okay? Um, and Andy Charlton, just because you're on the front row, and can you come and be Mephibosheth for us this morning? You see, we've got this in... in well, actually, my friend, that's completely counter to the narrative of the Bible. Yeah, so would you, can, uh, we're not going to go there, that's all right. But the story of Mephibosheth's life is that actually, um, when he was just five years old, his grandfather and his father were killed in the same battle. So if you guys could just, that would be really helpful. Yeah. A a amazing. Uh, the acting... <laughs> this was not in the book of 2 Samuel, people. It's too late for them. Yeah, okay. Well, Mephibosheth was only five years old, so he wasn't at the battle. He was on the family estate being looked after by a nanny. I'm not going to get a nanny. We're just going to... You have to draw a line sometimes on these things. Being looked after by his nanny. And when the news of his father's death and his grandfather's death reached the family estate, there was such commotion and uproar. Um, everybody was fleeing. They were expecting this enemy invasion to come from the battlefield to the, uh, to the estate where they were all living. There was such a commotion that everybody fled, and the nanny or maid who was carrying Mephibosheth dropped him in the, in the commotion. And she dropped him in such a way that he, he fell and twisted both his feet. He, injured, he was so badly injured at five years old that he became lame, the Bible says, in both of his feet. As I was reading uh, this story, it reminded me, uh, in our own family, my sister-in-law, Alicia, was once dropped when she was a baby. Don't laugh, it's true and very sad. It is true, but it's not that sad. It, she was dropped by Karis when she was one year old. Now, she's not lame in either of her feet, praise God, and that's probably all I should say. So, she was dropped when she was a baby. Mephibosheth was dropped when he was five years old, and he was lame in both his feet, the Bible tells us. So this is a really difficult situation for him to grow up in. Actually, he 
never recovered the lands and estates that he was living in at that time. And he spent his um, childhood growing up, next 15 years or so, growing up as a, a guest, I suppose, in the house of another wealthy landowning family. We don't know too much about that family, but we know they had enough resources to have him as a guest in the home. And I can imagine, in my mind's eye, that would be a very difficult situation for a young man to grow up in five years old, losing his father, his grandfather, his uncle uh, was killed in battle not long afterwards, and he grew up as a, as a guest, no estates of his own, no inheritance of his own, no future of his own, just effectively sponging off another family. That's how he grew up as a young man, from the age of five up till about 20 years old. And when he was about 20 years old, that's when he encountered King David. So King David, who as a young man fought the giant Goliath, had a completely different background, upbringing experience kind of from that age. Um, and then spent from the age of about 15, probably the next 30 years or so, fighting in different parts of, the, of, of that region. Sometimes he was um, fighting uh, a civil war. Sometimes he was fighting against other tribes in the area. Um, but probably he spent about between the age of about 15 up to he was about 45, basically fighting. And, and that's the point where we pick up this story in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9. So we're going to read it. Just so that you know, I haven't completely made this entire narrative up, but we're going to pick up in um, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and that's where we're really going to draw our inspiration from and our message for this morning. So hopefully it's going to come up. So at this point, David asked, is there anyone, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Look, is there still no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. Oh, where is he? The king asked. And Zebra answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So, King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down. He bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, <laughs> I don't know what happened, it was obviously... Right, good, fine. Don't want to draw it, so fine. Um, David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Well, the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, your servants, you're to farm the land for him. Bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And so Ziba said to the king, 
Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table. This is brilliant. I love this verse. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. It's a great verse. So Father, this morning we pray. Illuminate your word to us. If you want to pray with me, why don't you just place a hand on your heart. I just love doing this. It's a symbolic way of saying we're taking a moment just to ask God to speak to our hearts in this time. Say, Lord Jesus, speak to my heart that I may receive your word, to speak it, to guard it, and to do what it says. Amen. 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 I hope you've got a sense of the atmosphere in the king's throne room in that moment. I hope you can see something of what it was like for Mephibosheth coming from this really incredibly difficult situation in life, difficult family background and circumstances, being brought before King David and just not hardly knowing what to do with himself, feeling so ashamed of where he's come from, his situation, his um, injuries in his body, that he just throws himself down in front, in front of David. And yet, for me, David is such a central character in the Bible. He's a huge figure in the Bible, really noteworthy. And many times in the Bible, we see that David is like a foreshadowing or a, a prototype or a representation of what Jesus Christ is going to be like when he comes on the earth. Although David was a thousand years before Jesus, so many ways he carries the character, the attributes, the position, the sort of the hero place that Jesus carries. And so as we read this story, we can look at King David, not just as being a king at that time, but actually David, his actions, his words, the way he carries himself in that moment, they represent the heart of God to human beings. And Mephibosheth could represent any one of us. You know, if we were to come face to face with God at some point, I think we would probably feel like a dead dog. I think we would probably feel, God, I'm just not worthy to be in the same I think we would have something of that in that moment. And so David represents the prototype or the, um, the, the, the type, as the scholars would call it, the tupos, of, of who Jesus is going to be when he walks the earth. And so for me, it's completely noteworthy that the first thing that we see about the character of God is God's default setting. God's default setting. I'm going to um, ask the corpses to rise up, and you guys can leave the stage. King David, thank you very much. You've been brilliant, really helpful. Thank you. We'll release you guys, because we're going to talk about God's default setting. So I touched on the fact that David has been, he's basically been at war for the last 30 years since he was a, a teenager. And this is pretty much the first time um, 2 Samuel chapter 9, pretty much the first time when he's had a moment's peace to himself. And you see in that moment, the character of God is just this lifting up wellspring of desire. Who am I going to bless? I'm so happy, so relieved, so at peace. It's so good to finally have peace in the kingdom. I, I want to I share that with somebody. I want to bless somebody else. I want to, all this good stuff inside of me, I just want to give that to somebody else. In fact, it's so alive in him that he doesn't even really know who he's going to give it to. 
And so we have this in verse 1 where he says, well, should, is, there, is there anyone? Is there so, is, who, can, who can I be good to? Oh, I could be good to someone from Saul's household, but I don't know if there's anybody left. Is there anyone from Saul? He's got all this good stuff inside him kind of coming out that he just wants to give to somebody else. It's, you know, if you, um, I don't know if you've ever had such a good day at the office that on the way home, you think, oh, just, just went so well today. I, I just want to buy flowers for my wife and gifts for my children when I get home. Nobody's saying amen to that. I don't know why. My wife is more like this than me, I have to, I have to confess. When we were in Sweden, um, she, she's just got that in her, where when everything's well with her, she wants to share that with other people. So we went to the mall to get lunch in Sweden, and she said, oh, it's such a great conference. We're having such a, it's just so wonderful to be in Sweden. We should buy something for the children. Hallelujah, my love, let's do that. Okay, so we're walking through the mall. She said, oh, we, there's a toy shop in Sweden. We should buy toys for our children. And in my head, I'm like, I'm pretty sure they have toy shops in Newcastle. Um, but she's just so overflowing with how well the conference is all going and how good it all is. She wants to give that to somebody. We got some lunch, we wander back. And she's like, oh, it's just so lovely. I love Sweden. You know, there's a lovely clothes shop over there. We should buy some clothes for the children because we're just having such a great time in Sweden. We'll remember Sweden. I just want to share the goodness of Sweden with the children. Oh, I'm pretty sure they have clothes shops. In, I'm pretty sure H&M's in England as well. My no, we should get them Swedish ones because they'll be different. So sure enough, we went to, we've got some stuff. But it's that. You can see how it is with David when he's just so full of something good. He wants to give it to somebody else. And actually, the... The challenge in that is that's how God is. That's how God is with us. David's a representation of the character and nature of God. God's default setting is good. God's default setting is to want good things for his people. It's his nature, it's his character, it's his default setting. I think sometimes in life we can have a misunderstanding of what God's like. We can think that God is a, like, a, like the person who marks your exam. And, and we can think that when they go to mark the exam, they're looking for all the things we've done wrong. I don't know if anybody else has struggled with where exactly you should put the apostrophe before the S, after the S. I mean, you know, tricky. We can think that God's the exam marker who's looking through the paper, trying to find the place where we put the apostrophe wrong trying to find where we didn't show our workings in sufficient detail to get all the marks in that maths question. He's, it's like we think he's looking for where he can trip us up, but that's not the picture the Bible has. The picture in the Bible is God's marking the exam paper carefully, sure, but he's looking for all the things we did right. God's reading the exam paper of our lives and saying, what arguments have they created in their favor? What opportunities does this person have? You know, it's striking that he looks beyond the fact that he's the grandson of Saul, of Saul and sees only that he's the son of Jonathan. He's looking for the reasons in Mephibosheth's favor and looking beyond the things that would count against him. I think sometimes in life we can feel, oh God, I don't know if God would bless me because I know that I've done this and I didn't do that and I forgot to do this thing over here. And so many reasons that we might say, if God were marking the exam paper of my life, I would not get a good grade. But actually, the exam question that counts more than anything else is how we respond to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the exam question 
that God puts in front of us. That's the exam question that counts. I want to talk some more about that in a moment. But just for now, I think it's just remarkable that we have this insight into the character and nature of God. He's got good things in him. And his default setting is to be looking around. Where am I going to give those good things? How am I going to give those good things? Who am I going to give those good things to? It's his default setting. You know, I think there is a really practical lesson for us from the attitude of David in that time as well. I touched on before, so we had Grandfather Saul, who many of us will know was the king of Israel, and his relationship with King David was complicated, shall we say. Sometimes they were close with each other, and, and David, uh, Saul lent on David, you know, relied on him. And then he would go into fits of jealousy and rage, and he threw um, David out. David had to go into exile from, from the land of his birth because of all the jealousy and rage that Saul was carrying towards him. And so it's really weird when David says to himself, is there anybody around of the house of Saul that I can bless? That was completely contradictory to the normal way of doing things. The normal way of doing things would have been David to say, is there anybody of the house of Saul still around so that I can execute them and protect my place on the throne? Is there anybody of the house of Saul left so that I can kick them out of the kingdom, so that I can have my revenge on them, so I can exile them like they exiled me? Is there anybody of the house of Saul because I am going to get my own back on that family? That would have been completely normal. That would have been what everybody expected him to do. And yet David says, no, no, no. I, I, I know Saul and I had our differences but Jonathan and I were close. And for the sake of Jonathan, I would bless that family. For the sake of the commitment and the covenant and the friendship that I have with Jonathan, I would, I would disregard my falling out with Saul. And only, I only choose to remember the good things I had with Jonathan. And I choose to bless his descendants. That is a challenging, challenging thought. I wonder how many of us struggle to look at the people around us and recognize all... I think it's easier to say, well, because of all these terrible things they did and because they let me down with this and because this person did this and because of this and they were horrible to me on this and, you know, they said they'd do that and they didn't do it. And we can very easily find ourselves focusing on the sore-like characteristics of people around us, all the negative reasons, all the reasons why we should stop talking to that person, all the reasons we should cut them out of our lives, all the reasons why we shouldn't, um, you know, why we should screen our phone calls from them. Very easy to remember all of those negative things. More challenging to say, yeah, but because of these things that are in their favor, because they're actually like this, because they can be like this, because the potential in them is this positive thing, I'm going to show kindness to that person. I'm going to keep that relationship with this person. There was a lady called um, Clara Barton. Clara Barton was the founder of the American Red Cross. Some years before, she'd been really um, let down, betrayed by somebody in quite a, a vicious way. And some years later, a friend of hers was talking to her about it and said, but don't you remember what they did to you? Don't you feel bad about that? And Clara Barton said, no, 
I distinctly remember forgetting about all of that. Such a powerful difference to the way we often do things. It's as if David was sitting there and saying, well, yeah, I remember that I used to be at odds with Saul, but I distinctly remember forgiving and forgetting. I wonder how many of us at times in our lives have needed that change of attitude to not look at the bad things that people have done to us or the way that situations have been, but say, no, I distinctly remember forgiving and forgetting those things. Because that's how God is with us. That's his nature. That's his default setting. You know, the second thing I wanted to talk about was the life and situation of Mephibosheth in this time. Mephibosheth. And I said, if, if, if David is a representation and a prototype of Jesus, then I think Mephibosheth works as a representation and a prototype of each one of us, any one of us. I could be Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth could be me. Any one of us could be Mephibosheth. Facing some challenges in life, facing some challenges in his, in his body, physical challenges, I, I think it's not a bridge too far to say he was facing some emotional challenges. His self-image as he came into that room in front of David was not just that he was a dog, which I hope nobody here has a self-image of themselves as being a dog, but that he was a dead dog. You know, that is, that is self-esteem at a low, low ebb. That's where Mephibosheth, that was how he saw himself. Wake up, look in the mirror in the morning, what does he see? A dead dog. It's not a place in life that any one of us would want to be. And he comes in front of David, and David says to him, don't be afraid. You know, those words really impact me on a couple of levels. Because we've already talked about the, the normal way that a king in those days would have behaved. It would have been completely normal for David to summon Mephibosheth just so he could execute him in front of the court. That was probably what Mephibosheth was expecting, I would guess. I think he came in, I think he was very, very nervous, heart thumping, blood rushing in his ears. You know, as he bowed down on the floor, was he braced because he was expecting the headsman's axe to come down? I think I would be afraid in that situation. But those words from David to Mephibosheth are strangely prophetic, not just of Mephibosheth in that moment, but actually as if he's seeing beyond Mephibosheth on the floor in the throne room there to the background of Mephibosheth's family life and line. And if you've read the story of Grandfather Saul, King Saul, in the Bible, you'll have seen that fear was a major obstacle in his life. You know, it was fear that tripped him up from the purposes of God. It was fear, very often, of, of other people, what other people would say about him, what other people would think about him. Very often, it was fear, on a couple of occasions, that held him back from fulfilling what God had called him to. And so, as Mephibosheth comes into the throne room, it's as if David's looking at him and seeing not just the moment in front of him at that time, if you like a normal fear, 
or a natural fear or an expected fear because of the situation. But it's as if David's looking at him beyond that to say, actually, there's something operating over your life, over your family line, that's coming as a pressure on your life that casts an atmosphere of fear over who you are and how you, how you see yourself. And so David speaks. I think it's very prophetic how David speaks to that situation. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, this is a profoundly challenging passage for each one of us. It's profoundly challenging for me. I'll receive it as a challenge for my life as well. But I'm bringing it because I think it's a good word for us all to hear. It's a challenge that says, what are the things in our life that we're carrying that aren't helpful for us? You know, sometimes they might be things where we look at the natural situation and circumstances and we say, well, it's completely sensible to be afraid because you're in the throne room of a man who was at odds with your grandfather and you're expecting to be executed. And sometimes we might justify it and say, oh, it's normal to be afraid in in these moments. But actually, the way that King David spoke to Mephibosheth was to say, actually, there is a wider spiritual pressure that comes from your family line over your life and is causing you to be afraid when you don't have to be. We can receive all kinds of strange things from our families, all kinds of traditions and all kinds of cultures that might or might not be so helpful to us. Some people will um, know that Pastor Herbert Harrison was the man who founded this church. He was married to a lady called Mary Harrison. Um, We honor their legacy. They stepped out in faith and really won through and conquered something in our city to start a church in this place. Um, Pastor Herbert's daughter, uh, Lois, married a man called Ken Gott, They started a church in Sunderland. I think they've got a church in Newcastle now as well. They're a church-planting family. That's who they are. That's in their nature. And um, Pastor Lois once um, was with our family for for lunch. And and she shared a story of how she taught her children to cook a roast joint for Sunday lunch. And she said, well, here's what you do. You take the end here, you trim off about an inch of the joint here, and on the other side, you trim off about an inch of the joint here, and then you put it in the oven. And so her daughter said to her, well, why do you do that, mum? Is there something wrong with the, you know, with the sort of inch of meat on either side of the joint? And she said, oh, I don't know. That's just how my mum taught me how to do it. So next time she was with her mum in the kitchen or something, the memory must have sparked. So she said to her mum, oh, mum, I was teaching the, the, my daughters, the girls, how to cook a joint. And I told them, you know, you trim the edge off here and you trim the edge off on the other side and then you put it in the oven. And her mum said, well, what do you do that for? She said, no, 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 that's, that's how you taught me to do it. She said, yeah, I ta- we, we used to do it like that because that's how big our oven was. <laughs> I got a bigger oven, so I stopped having to trim the air. How much meat have you wasted? <laughs> and Pastor Lois was sharing this with us as a, an example that, you know, sometimes we receive things from our parents that actually they didn't mean any harm by but they come into our life and they constrain us. They box us in to a way of seeing the world, a way of doing things, a way of conceiving. Oh, that's just normal. Everybody cuts the meat like that. No, they don't. We receive these things. Mephibosheth, oh, everybody's afraid all the time. Actually, Mephibosheth, no. That's not right. Don't be afraid. There's a different pressure on your life. And David speaks to him really prophetically about that. And you know, I think we can, if we can hear it, we can hear the voice of David speaking to us. 
to say, what is it in our lives that we've received from our family? You know, with, with that example, um, Mary Harrison didn't mean any harm when she was telling her daughter how to cut the meat. That was just the size of the oven they had. Our parents didn't mean us any harm most of the time. Most of the time. They were just doing their best, but we might have received something from their background, from their experience, from what they knew that has been a pressure on our lives, much like Mephibosheth was under that spiritual pressure of fear. So David speaks, don't be afraid, get the breakthrough. Because it comes to me that there was in that moment as well as, as the dead dog situation, there was God's divine solution. There was God's divine solution. We see it when David speaks to Mephibosheth. He says in verse 7, I'll restore to you, I'll restore to you all of the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you'll always eat at my table. And I think it's in verse 9 where we read that Mephibosheth came and ate at the king's table just like one of the king's sons. Such a beautiful image. But you know, when Pastor Caesar was sharing on this, he said, think about the table. He said, if you think about how the Old Testament was set up with the tabernacle, the place for worship, and the place for sacrifice, the altar in that place was nothing more than a table. It was just a table where they took the offerings for sacrifice to be um, burnt and raised up. It was just a table. And so if you can see it in this passage, there's a picture of coming to the place where God made provision. There's a picture of coming to the cross. He said the cross is like a proto- the table is like a prototype or a representation or a foreshadowing of what the cross was going to be like. It's a place where our dead dog situation meets God's divine solution. It's a place where we go when we're most in need It's a place where we go when we most need that breakthrough. It's a place where we go where we most need the spiritual pressure lifted off our lives. And he said, as as David spoke, he said, you'll always eat at my table. And one of the things that struck me about that was that very often we, we act as if the cross is an event that happened 2,000 years ago. And it's as if we're looking back in time and say, oh yes, that was... That was good. I see that the cross happened 2,000 years ago. That was a powerful thing and a good thing. And I'm, I'm really glad that that happened. And it happened 2,000 years ago. But you know, when David speaks, he says, you'll always eat at my table. There's a reminder that the cross is in a continuous present tense for our lives. You know, we never step to a point where the cross isn't in the present tense. We step aside, but the, the table comes with us. And we step and the table comes with us. And we step and the table comes with us. We're never at a point in time in history looking back and seeing the cross as a a distant past event. We're always at a place. We're always eating at the king's table. And so the picture is that there's an opportunity day by day by day by day to come to the foot of the cross and receive provision for our daily lives. You know, Pastor Caesar was sharing some incredible stories about his life encountering the Lord at the cross. He was sharing how... Um, back earlier this year, some of you will, will have heard this story from the conference in July where he shared it. Hurricane Irma was sweeping across the um, Atlantic and heading towards Florida, where my brother, where Karis's brother, my brother-in-law lives, um, where Pastor Caesar and his family um, make their home. 
And he was sharing with us just how it was that the Lord led him to pray, to come to the foot of the cross, to seek God's provision and pray not only for his own family, but for the church in Miami, for the people of Miami, that the hurricane would miss them and, and pass down by the, by the Gulf. And it is a, it is a, it's actually bonkers to, to look at the map of where the projected path of the hurricane was meant to be. Um, some of us were doing it. We were following it live. You know, we had family out there. They left um, their homes in South Florida and, and headed up to Orlando They went to get out of where the path of the hurricane was meant to be. And it was from Orlando that he prayed, as it were, from the foot of the cross and said, God, don't let this hurricane pass over our house. Don't let this hurricane pass over the, um, the houses and homes of people in our church. And, you know, you can go, you can look at the path of the hurricane and forecast to go almost exactly through where their um, church building and family homes are. And you can see the path of it change. And he describes how he spent that morning, uh, the Lord woke him early to pray. And he prayed for about three hours. He was praying and praying and just interceding to God to move the path of the hurricane at the foot of the cross. And I think, you know, we were in this convention hall and... It was remarkable to hear a man share how God used him in that way. I think it was a very, very quiet moment in the conference. It was not a, um, you could hear a, a, a pine cone drop or something. It was just remarkable to hear him sharing how God led him to pray in that way. And, and the principle that I took away was there is always an opportunity to come to the cross. There's always a continuous present tense for the cross to be real and alive in our lives. So this morning, I just want to share that story. I just want to share that with us this morning and just give us an opportunity to come to the cross today and commit to being people who are always at the foot of the cross, you know, day by day by day. So if you can receive this word, I just want you to stand with me this morning and I want us to pray together. One of the things Pastor Caesar was talking about as he was talking about coming to the foot of the cross was almost like a challenge to say, if we imagine ourselves, close your eyes, imagine you're coming to the foot of the cross. He asked, what do you see when you conceive of that in your mind's eye? And he was asking a bunch of pastors and people on the front row, getting different responses. And he said, when he comes to the cross, the first thing he sees as he looks up to sort of conceive of the face of Jesus at the cross, the first thing he sees actually is his own face on the person hanging on the cross. And every day he comes and he prays and he imagines Jesus on the cross. But as he starts that out, he imagines actually just recognizes it, it, should, have been, it should have been him there. And it should have been each one of us. You know, the picture of the Bible is that we were in rebellion against the king. We were like Mephibosheth's family. We'd fallen out with the king. And it wouldn't have been unexpected or unfair for the king to have us executed. But the picture in the Bible is that Jesus, the king, reaches out and says, don't be afraid. I'm going to give you blessing instead of punishment. I'm going to give you a change of nature instead of the punishment that you know you deserve. 
And that's what it is when Pastor Caesar looks at the cross and he conceives of the face of Jesus on the cross or conceives of his own face on the cross. And just in this moment, I think we can take a moment and say, God, I know that I've done wrong things in my life. I've been the wrong kind of person. I've had the wrong attitude towards you. I've been in rebellion against you. I've made a mess of all kinds of things. And just in the silence of your heart right now, you can come and recognize that to the Lord and know that that should have been us there. And, and if you know, like Mephibosheth, that there's things that have come into your life from your family that you'd rather not have had. If you know the spiritual pressures, forces on your life, ways of looking at the world, preconceptions or limitations, you know, things your family have said to you, things your grandparents might have said to you, oh, you'll only ever get so far in life or you'll never be that kind of person or our family always struggle with this. This is just how it is with our family. We're always, you know, we're an angry family. We're an unsuccessful family. We're whatever it is, things that your family have brought into your life. And you know, like Mephibosheth, that's a pressure over your life. Just want you to raise your hand where you are. Everybody's eyes are closed and we're all just doing this together. And I'm putting my hand up because I know there's stuff in my life where I need change. So Lord Jesus, we just we recognize that at the cross, in this moment, we believe that you took all those things to yourself. We believe that every spiritual pressure, every force over our lives, every negative word that was spoken over us is cancelled and is taken up to be with you at the cross. You took all those things on your own shoulders. You cancelled every negative word. You broke through for every person responding to you in this time, God. Lord Jesus, we pray as we step through this week, we pray that the cross will be a continuous present tense for our lives. We pray that each one of us will experience more and more of your power to change us day by day. And as I was preparing, I wrote out a prayer that I'd love us to say together. We can put this on. Instagram or you can take a photo on your phone but this is a great prayer for us to be praying really simply really short this week and just as a way of coming to the cross every day let's pray this together now Lord Jesus thank you for inviting me to meet you at the cross today and every day I choose to believe that you're good and that you can rescue me from all fear Help me to follow you every day. Amen.